This week, 175 nations have gathered at the headquarters of the UN Environment Program in Nairobi, Kenya, to pursue a legally binding global treaty to end plastic pollution. The conference, known as Inc. 3, is billed as marking the midpoint of the journey towards a global treaty. And it includes countries responding to the so-called zero draft of the treaty, which has been prepared by the UN's negotiating committee. One critical word that's used throughout the zero draft is microplastics. And we're joined now by the man who first coined that term back in 2004. Richard Thompson is Professor of Marine Biology at the University of Plymouth and Director of its Research Unit on International Marine Litter, a field he pioneered and is a world leader in. He's currently in Nairobi observing what progress is being made towards what the head of the UN Environment Program calls a once-in-a-planet opportunity. Professor Richard Thompson, welcome to Sunday Extra. Oh, good morning. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Let's start with the basics. I'll ask you to describe for us what microplastics are and maybe you could do it by taking us back to 1993 and a beach on the Isle of Man, which uh, leads, I suppose, to the process of you coining that term. Well, yeah, well, it's, a really, it's a really interesting question and it's a pathway that I didn't expect my career would take at that time. I was training to be a scientist. I was studying marine ecology um, training for my PhD and what I noticed was every day the, the beaches I visited for my studies had plastic accumulating in them and I kept removing it and it kept coming back. So I started to work with volunteer groups uh, doing beach cleans and they were documenting what was removed and I got curious of this because, you know, I was training to be a scientist and at that time we t databases, it sounds incredible to say, were just available to us. So I was putting all this stuff into spreadsheets and suddenly uh, this chance observation really came that that I realized there's no category on any of these sheets for what it struck me was the most abundant plastic, which was the small pieces. Nobody was recording it, nobody was removing it. And so when I started to teach students myself a couple of years later, I set some of them the challenge. I said, come find me the smallest bits of plastic on the beach. Don't worry about the big stuff. And um, they came back with sand samples and we started to look through them and there were clearly bits down the microscope, smaller than the grains of sand themselves, that didn't look very natural, blue, red. Uh, it was then almost a forensic, like a crime scene journey, you might say, and some of the analytical equipment we used was similar to that used in forensic science to actually establish that these small pieces amongst the grains of sand were indeed uh, plastic. And uh, we confirmed many common polymers. And so then I, I, I sort of wanted to ask other questions uh, about it. This was at the time largely a a sort of spare time occupation because my, my main funding was coming in for the, the marine ecology research that I was doing. Plastics as a, as a topic was not something that attracted funding, but we, we went on and uh, we showed that a range of creatures would eat this very small material. We showed that it was present on, on beaches and on the seabed around the UK. And then we also got this chance opportunity to look back at archived samples that had been collected over four decades, but had never been opened. They were still sealed, time capsules, if you like, originally collected to look at plankton from the oceans. But we were curious to know over those decades, had these very small bits of plastic, um, could you find them there? And had they increased in abundance? And indeed, we should, they had significant increases uh, in microplastic in waters around the UK over a 40-year period. So all of that that, that data um, went into that first paper where we coined the word microplastics, if you like. You know, people had, had found small bits of plastic before, but here we were going down much smaller. We were going down to less than the diameter of a human hair, and we were confirming 
all of the polymers. And it, it struck me at that time that, that this really small plastic, the microplastics as we called them, had the potential um, to present environmental harm in different ways. You know, you think of a plastic carrier bag, it's going to take quite a big creature to be able to eat that. But something that's microscopic is available to anything from a large filter-feeding whale right down to a microscopic planktonic creature. So, you know, the potential for interactions with marine life was much, much greater. And so one of the things we wanted to establish was, you know, could, could these really small pieces then present harm in the environment, perhaps in different ways, to the larger items? And you ended up co-authoring a, a one-page article in the magazine Science, which was titled Lost at Sea, Where is All the Plastic? It concludes by saying more work's needed to establish whether there are any environmental consequences of this debris. Looking back on that sentence now from the standpoint of 2023, Richard, what do we know now about the environmental consequences of this debris? Yeah, no, that's really interesting. You know, back then, of course, there was one paper, my paper back in 2004, you know, talking about microplastics. If I look at the science since then, if I do a search on it in databases, there's nearly 5,000 scientific public publications on this topic. So, you know, we do know more. There are questions still to answer. I mean, we certainly know they're incredibly widely distributed. They're not just near to population centers where you imagine, you know, most of the plastic is being used by us. We found them microplastic pieces right down in the deep sea, thousands of meters down. <laughs> we found them nearly 8,000 meters up in the snow near the summit of Everest. We found them in Arctic sea ice in incredible concentrations. We found them in fish uh, taken from the English Channel, for example, uh, including commercially important species. So they're incredibly widespread in the environment. The laboratory studies done by my group and, and others now around the world have shown the potential for toxicological harmful effects on a range of different species. Now, many of those experiments have been done at concentrations of microplastics, you know, quantities slightly higher than we currently find in the natural environment. Uh, some experiments at concentrations much higher than in the natural environment. But of course, if we contam can continue contaminating the oceans in the way we have done, eventually the concentration in the environment and the concentration in some of those studies will actually merge. And the modeling studies suggest that if we don't change our ways in the next 50 to 100 years, we'll see wide-scale ecological harm in the environment from microplastics. On Sunday Extra, we are speaking with Professor Richard Thompson, Professor of Marine Biology at the University of Plymouth. And Richard's in Nairobi, Kenya, for the Inc. 3 conference, which is looking at the process of getting a global treaty to end plastic pollution. Richard, observing that process this week, what are your thoughts on the state of the discussion and whether the treaty, as it's shaping up from the zero draft, will do enough to avoid that widespread ecological damage that you're talking about from microplastics on a sort of 50-year time frame? Well, I think it's still in the balance. I mean, the discussions here in Nairobi are still going on. You know, uh, as a scientist, I see, and I won't call out individual countries, but I see a lot of countries speaking in, in favour of the kinds of motions that, that we would support as scientists. But I see also some others 
that are perhaps a little bit um, more hesitant. And of course, we want, you know, a global <laughs> treaty to try to reg regulate this. The plastics don't recognize, you know, international boundaries when they're in the oceans. They distribute far and wide, negatively affecting marine life. So I'm optimistic, but it's certainly not going to be an easy road. And, and that's because actually plastics are incredibly important materials to society. You know, they, they, they bring societal benefit, including having, if we use them responsibly, the potential to reduce our environmental footprint. So this is what I would call, or others have called a, a kind of a wicked problem. It's incredibly complex. It involves material science around the polymers. It involves social science around the way we humans behave and interact, that convenience, if you like, that we want from single-use packaging. And then, of course, there's the economic interests with some nations, you know, with an immense e economic um, investment, the plastic being incredibly important to them, or the oil and gas, which is ultimately the carbon source for most of the plastic that's produced, being very important to them. So, you know, it's quite a charged um, debate. And I think, you know, there will be winners and losers in it, but if we don't get it right, the main loser will be the environment and ultimately all of us who inha inhabit it, you know, us humans and all of the species there. So it is really important we get it right. But of course, different nations see it from different perspectives, which is why they're here negotiating. Mm. So you're a scientist who's a world authority on the impact of plastic pollution on the marine environment. At a event like this, which, as you say, is all about the negotiations between nations, how much of a showing do scientists like you actually get? So there's a, you know, there's a slight frustration there among some of the, the, the scientific community that we, we really operate in the margins. You know, we can organise side events, perhaps at lunchtime. Uh, we can try to make an intervention, but it's a quite case of of listing your point, I um, mean, you know, literally sometimes a day before you might get a chance to speak. You know, I understand that. It's important that the nations debate it. But I think at the moment what I'd say is that the scientific involvement, whilst we're here in Nairobi, there's 37 scientists from an independent body that's set up to help deliver this, this evidence gap, which is called the Scientist Coalition for an Effective Plastic Treaty. We're all doing this voluntarily uh, because there's a lack, if you, if you like, of any kind of formal instrument and then the, the problem behind that is that what we really need is a, a clear formal mechanism that's got properly established conflicts of interest procedures to make sure that the scientists that are inputting evidence to the treaty are not conflicted in any way by economic or or, or political uh, persuasions if you like we need independent evidence to guide the treaty and and so in order to get that you really need a formal process of engagement at the moment it's, it, you know, it's much more ad hoc, I would say. It's good that I'm here and I've got the potential to put my hand up, if you like, and, and make an intervention. But I think ultimately we're going to need something much more formalised and regulated to make sure that the evidence that's input is, is balanced. Richard, the treaty aims to deal with the full life of plastic. And it might be uh, tempting or perhaps almost intuitive these days to think that that's and that means talking about recycling, but it's much more than just recycling, isn't it? What does the full life of plastic entail? And what are some of the problems with recycling as we might understand it today? Yeah. So you picture the everyday items that, you know, bring us convenience, things like plastic bottles, crisp packets, you know, even 
plastic windows and plastic parts in cars and aeroplanes, they bring societal benefit. They have the potential to reduce our footprint on the environment. They bring us convenience. The problem comes at the end of a product's lifetime. Plastics are incredibly durable. That's one of their main benefits. Uh, they're also inexpensive, which means, unfortunately, most of what we produce goes into single-use applications, things that we use for an instant and then discard, uh, like single-use packaging. So we now make 400 million tons of plastic every year, and 40% of it is single-use. And that's rapidly accumulating as waste in managed systems, in landfills, for example, but also in the environment, where it's going to persist for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So the, the rate of waste generation is absolutely un unsustainable. Uh, at the moment, regrettably, most of the design that's going into plastic products fails to consider end of life. And so that creates a big challenge for recyclers that, uh, you know, the plastic diversity of plastic products they're being presented with and also the complexity, the chemical complexity of them makes it really, really challenging to recycle. So I think one of the things that we're going to need to see to, to, to help to resolve the problem is going to be actually a simplification of the diversity of products, but particularly the different chemical formulations that might help uh, recycling. At the minute, we're only recycling very, very small quantities of plastic, and it's and it's clear in the foreseeable future we won't be able to recycle our way out of the problem. We, you know, the the way that we're going to see success is by reducing the quantities produced in the first place. So we have to start with a waste hierarchy: reduce, reuse and try to get recycling working better for us through through better design. And some of that better design is actually very, very simple things like, uh, you know, not putting colorants into plastic bottles uh, that render them uneconomic to be recycled. You know, we can have a fizzy drink in a bottle that's made of clear plastic that has a higher value. And yet, and we've known that for decades. And yet, you know, we see product designers that want to get that brand differentiation. They want the lemonade bottle to jump out at you on the shelf, still putting pigments into uh, into PET bottles, which makes it very challenging uh, to, to make a profit for the recyclers. So there's really simple things that if we think about it in a in a systemic way, right from the design stage, that can, can get us to use the potential of plastics without some of these side effects that we're, we're currently seeing. Just finally, Richard... A lot of listeners might have seen things on social media that show sort of high-tech looking solutions to the problem of plastic in the oceans, things like sea bins and, and the like. I gather you're a little bit sceptical of what might be described as techno-optimism, but at the same time, presumably, you have a faith in science as an important part of the answer. Could you talk to us about how you see the role of new technologies in dealing with marine litter? You know, it's absolutely clear that cleanup isn't the answer to that. That's addressing the symptoms. It's not managing the underlying cause of the problem. I mean, you know, whether whether we're picking up on beaches, as I did, that's what first got me interested in it. And of course, I'd support any citizens that get involved in beach cleans. But but that hasn't that can't be the long term answer. And yet, we see some uh, investment, very substantive investment, in large scale technological. Uh, clean up, you know, I would far rather at the minute, you know, if there was a, a rich philanthropist listening to you now I'd, and they wanted to invest in it, I'd say, look, invest 99% <laughs> of your money in, in turning off the tap and stopping that flow of plastic to the environment in the first place. Put 1% into cleanup, uh, you know, technological cleanup, because it may be useful, but it, it can't be the answer just now. You know, it's almost the, the analogy we sometimes use is it's 
it's if the bath's overflowing and the tap's turned on full, what do you do? Do you turn off the tap or try to mop up the floor? We've got to start addressing the source and the cause of the problem rather than continue trying and failing to, to, to mop it up afterwards. So at the minute, you know, technological cleanup isn't the answer. And it's also, it becomes then a distraction that why does society get convinced that there's a gadget out there in the middle of an ocean that's going to magically solve this problem? Uh, for them. It's something the psychologists yeah. I work with would call techno-optimism. No magic solutions, but if there are any cashed-up philanthropists out there, please do get in touch with Sunday Extra as soon as possible, and Richard will try to pass on uh, their numbers as well. But thank you so much for speaking with us on Sunday Extra today. No, thank you very much for having me. That's Professor Richard Thompson, who's the leader of the International Marine Litter Research Unit at the University of Plymouth. And Richard was awarded an OBE in 2017 for his services to marine science. The UN Environment Program is aiming for those negotiations on a global treaty to end plastic pollution to be wrapped up by the end of 2024. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.